Hello, everybody. Welcome to Warhorn Media's Biblical Foundation for Aesthetics, segment number five on humor. I'm your humble and obedient host, as always, Nathan Aaron Alberson. We've got Benjamin Solzer there. Hello. One of our panelists. Yep. A very amusing fellow in and of himself. Very amused right now. That's And very sure. amused right now. I'm wearing one of those hats with a propeller. I'm wearing a propeller beanie. So Ben has not been able to stop laughing since I got to the studio. <laughs> Nathan, you are a card. I am a card. You know, people, people like to say that about me. Speaking of cards, though, Ben, we've got a real ace in our deck. And I'd appreciate it if you would introduce him right now. Don't be a joker, though. <laughs> well, how could I? That is Jake. Not Jack, folks. <laughs> He's an ace. It's... <laughs> we said this was going to be a biblical foundation for understanding humor. We didn't say it just was going to be no, a quality... People should not expect that. ...combination of Comedy. humor. That's Jake Menzel. He is the CEO of Warhorn Media. Mm-hmm. How you doing, Jake? Bemused. He's bemused. He's bemused. <laughs> well, that's a step better than melancholy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a step better than melancholy, the Jake Menzel story. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to provide a biblical foundation for aesthetics. And I think the way we're going to work, here, here's, how, here's how I want it to go today, guys. I want to talk about what people have said about humor. I want to give people a little history of the philosophy thereof. Not an all-encompassing one, but we'll just hit some of the major theories. And then I want to talk about what we think humor is. Then that'll lead, obviously, into a discussion of its uses and its abuses. So let's talk about popular ideas of humor in theology, philosophy, and psychology. Does the Bible have a theory of humor? Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughter. Yeah, it's got that. It's got that. It's also got... The Lord mocks proud mockers. Wisdom laughs at those who laugh at her. So you'll hear, hear this or that person make a defense of humor in the Bible, and they'll say this is such and such a passage is funny when the guy that's been healed goes to the Pharisees and says, like, you want to serve them too? Like, you know, there'll be passages yeah. that people are just like, come on. That's, that's funny. Or obviously Jesus was being funny here. There's that. Those There's those kinds of things. But in terms of explicit mentions or uses of straight up humor, laughter. What you actually have in the Bible is derisive stuff. A lot of mockery. A lot of mockery, which is what Ben was alluding to a second ago. You've got Psalm 2, famous one, great my soul among lions song people can listen to. So why are the nations in an uproar, the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. You have that. You have the wisdom passages that Mm -hmm. Ben mentioned where it's like. Oh, wisdom just says, if you ignore me, I'm going to laugh at you on the day of your calamity. Right. Yeah. Or you brought up the Job passage. Or maybe you didn't, maybe it was off mic, you know, God at the end, mm. you know, where mm-hmm. were you, Job? Where were you, Job? Were you there when? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me, since you know. <laughs> right. So, That's right. The answer um, is no, he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I think God knew the answer. I right. Think. But he's ironically <laughs> sort of uh, nudging Job, like, hey, 
So you have things like that. The most famous use of sarcasm is Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And this contest with Elijah, I'm sure most of our listeners know, it's whose whose God is going to send fire to light the sacrifice. And they're begging. And I think, aren't they even like cutting themselves? Yeah, they're cutting themselves. And trying to get their God. And And Elijah just does a little routine where he's like, where are your gods? Uh, Are they in the bathroom? Like... What's I think that's how it literally translates. Yeah, it's yeah. usually not actually translated like that, but it's like, right. is your God busy? Is he in the is bathroom? Is he relieving himself? Is he relieving himself? Yeah, you have a similar joke in Judges where, uh, what is it? Which which is which? Ehud? Kills, Ehud is the guy where the knife goes into the kills fat Eglon. guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eglon. Eglon. Yeah. yeah. Ehud kills Eglon, who's in the bathroom. And anyway, it's actually kind of a dirty joke. <laughs> you start talking about what actually happens then. I don't know if we can even record that, Nathan. So the guy sticks the sword in while he's in the bathroom and it goes all the way through and things start to smell and then the servants get embarrassed because he's taking so long and... It stinks really bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you have... Bathroom humor. Interestingly enough, you have some earthy stuff and you have a lot of... Not a lot of, but you have sarcasm, you have mockery, mm-hmm. you have derisiveness in the scriptures... That's very interesting to note because a lot of great Christian thinkers through the ages are going to be against humor precisely because it is mockery, because it is derision, because it is based on malicious, unkind. Yeah, it's going to be characterized as being mean-spirited mm-hmm. or malicious. Yeah, and just ungodly. Yeah, it, and connected to to anger. Yeah. Which, in fact, oh, is how it is connected in... When God is laughing at people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's in that Psalm 2 passage, it literally connects it. It's like, God, the king of heaven laughs, and then he rebukes them in his anger. Like, it's two sides of the same coin. Like, ha, yep. ha, ha, you guys think you can stand against me, and then, boom, then Here comes, comes the, the, the wrath. Yep. Actually, exactly what happens with Elijah. Elijah mocks them and mocks Baal, and then slaughters them all right and then has, <laughs> he has jokes on you <laughs> yeah. <prophets in> the <laughs> no i mean it really it, it really is it really is it, it, elijah also has the nerve to have them just keep dumping more water, and water <laughs> on, on his <laughs> yeah and you just imagine i mean you could make a movie of that that would be really funny like just all yeah. right guys get another and then they slowly walk put a over. trench around it so that the water that falls off of it gets kind of caught and pools around it that mm-hmm. would be great yeah, and you can imagine the prophets of Baal just like, you know, they're the bad guy. They're the bad bureaucrats and Ghostbusters or something, and they're just like getting more irritated, and, and then it's consumed. And So I'm not going to go through every Christian thinker that has said humor is mockery and therefore humor is bad. I want to note that humor as mockery is in the Bible on multiple occasions. And is presented in those places as good, you know, as being, yes, mockery, yes, anger, but just Mm -hmm. and well-targeted. Where a lot of these ideas actually come from is Plato. He said that laughter is malicious. Plato said that it is a form of scorn. Uh, This is a quote from Plato. He says, taken generally, the ridiculous is a certain kind of evil, specifically a vice. And then he describes... People who have the vice of self-ignorance, who think that they're cooler than they actually are, who think that they're smarter than they actually are. You know, he describes like Jane Austen characters, the kinds of people like Mr. Collins that Jane Austen makes fun of. And Plato says, we all like to make fun of those people and how they don't know themselves. And that's because we're malicious. That's because we like to point out ignorance 
in another person. We like to feel superior feel to it. Better about ourselves. It makes right. us feel superior. And it's morally objectionable. It's morally objectionable. And all of Plato's followers and I think into even Christian writers who were keying off of Neoplatonism and stuff like that have basically, you know, through the Middle Ages, people talked about humor as being a form of malice. Ar- Aristotle called wit educated insolence. That's a famous hmm. Aristotle quote, of course, Plato's pupil. Through the ages, people have seen humor as being that by and large it's for the plebs yeah it's for the plebs so plato actually says for the immoral it's for the lesser people right plato actually says we can't really get hope to get rid of it completely he basically says this i'm paraphrasing but let's make sure that it's it's just the plebs like let's let's just restrict it to the stupid people in society this has no place among the educated class yeah the actual moral upright citizen of Plato's Republic is not somebody who laughs very much, if at all, because he's better than that. He doesn't have those kinds of malicious feelings. And actually the Greek Stoics, I mean, it's right in the name, right? They right. they they were they felt the same way, obviously. Like there there's this element of malice and humor. And then there's an element of that the Stoics didn't really like, which is just an element of losing control. Mm-hmm. There's something animalistic about it. There's something that like, you don't know when you're going to laugh. It can take, a, take you by surprise. And that's not something that old Marcus Aurelius really thinks is a good thing. You don't want to. You need to be in total control all the time. And, and humor is something that takes you off guard, takes you by surprise. You need to be able to exercise as much control as possible. Some, somebody who is trying to make you laugh is assaulting your self-control. He is an enemy. Right. And so this point of view of humor means no self-control and humor means malice goes through the Middle Ages. It influences a lot of Christian thinkers, the, the Puritans. Um, I don't think the Puritans were half as humorless as they're portrayed in popular culture and in uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne novels and things like that. Thomas Watson makes me laugh. Yeah, Thomas Watson's huh. very colorful, very funny, very vibrant. Yeah. I would love to hear. I think if there's any great Christian father that I'd like to hear speak, Watson would be... He has to be in like the top three or something. Uh, I mean, yeah. obviously, I guess. John I'm gonna make him top five. Good, but top yeah. five, maybe top ten. You're gonna want to hear once you start that. You're gonna want to hear Luther. You're gonna mm-hmm. hear Augustine. You're gonna want to hear yeah. Chrysostom. Sure. Well, Chrysostom yeah. didn't like humor. He's another one. He's one of the ones that just said it's malicious. Um, really. Speaking of huh. <laughs> Christian fathers who weren't <laughs> big on humor. Sidebar: Just in terms of their speaking abilities and the way that they think and how much fun it might be to listen to them talk i think watson really would be in he's my, really great he's one of my favorites three. yeah i mean well and if you read like you know his well, he's, well, he's a puritan that actually just you don't have to screw yourself up and drill. it's not like reading john owen no, no it's the opposite uh, it's the opposite. owens owens writing a latinized form of english on purpose and he means to challenge you mm-hmm. and make you have to work for Watson's coming down to you and anybody today can sit down and read Thomas Watson and benefit from him. He's just that good. Where where Owen is like, here's something that the Bible says. Now here's the most complicated, interesting way to think of it. Uh, (laughs) Watson is like, here's something the Bible says. Now here's 10 examples of how it works out in your life. And five metaphors. Here's a story of a guy who disobeyed it and then his house burned down. (laughs) It's just always (laughs) stuff stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Watson really is. He's working hard to just like help it all land and connect. Yeah. The only reason that it feels kind of archaic and too big for us is because it's old, you know, like his examples feel kind of grandiose because they're Mm -hmm. from a long time ago. Well, and it's, and also because it seems like, 
it seems intimidating because you look at like, you know, a volume on the Beatitudes or a volume on the Ten Commandments or a volume on the Lord's Prayer. And you're like, oh my goodness. How did he how, get a whole book out of this? How is he drilling down so deep into this stuff? Like, I'm going to get lost. And really, and it's because it's like 10 anecdotes or examples per Yeah, he's, he's just like, he keeps circling around and circling around mm-hmm. and circling around and just trying to give you more and more handles and hooks. Mm-hmm. It's it, Sometimes it is like he's going to dig down and open this up and surf and riff and you know, go really deep. But a lot of it's just like, no, I just really want to be sure that you get this. Right. And so I'm just going to throw everything at it. Stories. And so, so, so they, the Puritans, many of them vibrant, full of life, not humor, humorless in the way that they actually conducted themselves, despite all the things that you were taught in your public high school about like, we're going to dunk women in water when they're disrespectful to their husbands (laughs) and all, all that kind of stuff. And, and the Scarlet Letter and all that good stuff. That being said, the Puritans, when they had to think too hard about it, weren't generally big fans of humor. There's one guy, I forget who he is. He's not one of the more famous ones. He wrote like a thousand page <laughs> essay on why no one should ever go see the comedies that were playing at the time, mm-hmm. which I chuckle as I say that, like, oh, that guy. But I mean, honestly, the comedies of the time were probably pretty vulgar and They're pretty raunchy, probably put on yeah. by people who sidelined as prostitutes. So yep. there's all kinds of reasons. And by the way, lots of comedies by Judd Ap- Apatow and stuff, kind of the same thing today. There's lots of, you know, you could write a thousand page screed against many things that are mm-hmm. comedy in today's world. And that's what this guy did. All of that to say, though, you don't really have a lot of people putting together any kind of a comprehensive and charitable view of humor in fact you you'd never really have mainstream and you know like in a popular forum but i'm going to circle back to the two great thinkers one of them a philosopher and one of them a theologian who i think did hit the nail on the head a little bit more and who were sympathetic to the fact that we should use humor in our lives uh first though i do want to hit one fairly influential guy from the 20th century not a theologian, but a psychologist. His name was Sigmund Freud. And he wrote a book, I think called On Humor or something like that, where he says that humor is us. I don't know. Does anybody want to take a wild guess what Freud would say about humor? (laughs) Humor is us vocalizing our subconscious thoughts in such a way as to blend in with break the tensions of our inner conflict between our Id, the ego and the right super ego. like the i forgot something like i, I can never that. keep them straight but it's the ego expressing what the id would otherwise have to suppress the ego is expressing something from the id that the super ego would otherwise suppress, suppress I yeah think. uh yeah that'd be mm, the way that it, is that, is that, i think the, that's right is that right yeah i, I know what, i know the id i know that one but i always get the ego and the super ego confused and who cares because even psychologists don't put any stock in freud uh, the only place where his ideas are still resonant is in popular culture and movies and stuff like that. But this is not a podcast about Sigmund Freud and his ideas. That's what he said. I think he's not wrong. You know, I mean, humor does express the inexpressible. I mean, that's why we like shock comics. That's why we like George Carlin. That's why we like George Carlin's such an old reference now. That's why we like, uh, yeah. who is it? It was Louis C.K. a couple of years ago, but he got canceled. Um yeah, it, not inexpressible in the sense of something that can't be put into words, but something that is, that we're afraid. Something that's dangerous, something that we're not supposed to say. Something that one way or another feels transgressive. Right. Either because of the social mores or because of 
in many cases, God's law and or whatever. Yeah. And what Fred wants to kind of do is argue backwards and say, actually, it's all transgressive. If you laugh at a guy slipping on a banana peel, it's because actually you probably you want that guy to slip on the banana peel. You want him hurt. Yeah. You, you want to see somebody get hurt. It makes you feel good. That's how uh, your id really likes it. But you're not allowed to just say, hey, you got hit, slipped on a banana peel, you moron. So you laugh. You know, he'd kind of work backwards to try and make fit it all into that mold. I don't think that any of these things quite get at it. And to be fair to the Puritans and our fathers in the faith, I don't think most of them were actually trying to offer any kind of comprehensive view of humor. They were just talking about things that they saw or experienced. Like that guy that mm-hmm. wrote the thousand page screed, he's not trying to say that he's not trying to make a case that all comedy is bad. Although maybe he incidentally does what he's really mad about is a specific thing that was happening. Then it wouldn't occur to him to come up with a overarching theory of humor. There's two people though that did. And I want to talk about them because I think they get closer to what we're going to end up saying. And I think that they were pretty on the money actually. So the first one is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica talks about everything. (laughs) I mean, he just covers everything. I mean, the joke is how many angels could fit on a pin. I don't know. Is that actually in there? Is that a real thing? But that, but the reason that that's people always say that. I don't know if it's in Thomas, but it is. There are the scholastics. Some of the, there are scholastics the that literally men. did debate that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Yep. And what Thomas Aquinas wants to do is he wants to take. Yeah, who is Thomas Aquinas? Ben, just in case. I don't remember which century. I never do. Twelfth. Twelfth, I think. Twelfth century. 13th, yeah. Medieval Catholic Dominican monk mm-hmm. who was a brilliant scholar. Right. And just awesome in terms of his intellect and the summa theologica was his you know his summa it was his masterpiece Mm -hmm. but he died before it was finished but it just tries to take it tries to take every topic in the bible and give answers and the way that a scholastic gives answers is to say here's a proposition now here's a counter argument now here are four points responding to the counter argument now here are points responding to those points now here's my final answer to all those points Mm -hmm. and he does that with every question and it can be boring it can be interesting, but it certainly takes a lot of work to read him. Right. A lot of work. And he talks about the question, basic questions like what is pleasure? What is rest? What is work? You know, he's, he's trying to answer all the big questions and that leads him into discussions of things like humor. And I actually want to read two quotes by him from the section where he talks explicitly about humor. Uh, quote, as bodily tiredness is eased by resting the body, so psychological tiredness is eased by resting the soul. As we have explained in discussing the feelings, pleasure is rest for the soul, and therefore the remedy for weariness of soul lies in slackening the tension of mental study and taking some pleasure. Those words indeed in which nothing is sought beyond the soul's pleasure are called playful or humorous, and it is necessary to make use of them at times for solace of soul. What a libertine. Yeah, what a libertine. Famous libertine, <laughs> Thomas Aquinas. It's quote number two. Anything conflicting with reason in human actions is vicious. Of course, Thomas Aquinas would say that. It is against reason for a man to be burdensome to others by never showing himself agreeable to others or being a killjoy or wet blanket on their enjoyment. And so Seneca says, bear yourself with wit, lest you be regarded as sour or despised as dull. Now, those who lack playfulness are sinful. Those who never say anything to make you smile or are grumpy with those who do. So that's a quote from 
Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> so unexpected. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> so Thomas Aquinas said that, and we'll circle back to, I mean, I don't know that I would agree with everything in there, but we'll circle back to what's useful in there. Uh, what's useful in Thomas Aquinas. And let me now give a quote from not a theologian, but uh, arguably the most famous and influential modern philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Actually, you know what? Let me give just an explanation because I don't have a quote. What Kant does is he compares the enjoyment of joking and wit to two things, to games, games of chance and to the enjoyment of music. And he says in all three, the pleasure is a, quote, changing free play of sensations, which is caused by shifting ideas in the mind. So he says the way that you approach comedy, the way that you enjoy humor is the same way that you enjoy music because music is just in an abstract way shifting jumbling things around in your head and causing you pleasure and that's what humor does and that's what a game of chance that's this other thing does they all just kind of delight to to no particular end delight except for enjoyment jumble things around in your head and you don't really know where any of them are going right exactly which would have been which is less true of music for us now, but... Right, if we listen to a piece, it's because it's on Spotify and we can listen to it a thousand times. Right. But... But the, you know, that first time that album or that song comes out, even if it's following forms we know... It's for what we don't know that we listen to it. Right. Yeah, it's it's for that, how's this artist going to surprise me? What's going to be different or unexpected? Same with a novel. Right. Yeah, exactly. With any art form, really. Well, that's okay. So I so put a pin in Aquinas and a pin in Kant, and just kind of hold what they said in your minds because I th- I think it's helpful and hold what we said about Plato and everybody that was kind of allied against humor in your mind because I want to get away that that is kind of I will admit a very slapdash all over the place history, but and that's partially my fault, but it's also the history of how people have thought about this is pretty slapdash because. There hasn't been the great scholar who's just put it all together Nailed it to the wall. You can find passages in these different people, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go through it all, but you can find uh, Schopenhauer talking about it. You can find Nietzsche talking about it. You can find various church fathers on the theological side talking about it here or there, but someone who just dedicated their life to, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to put this all together. Didn't really exist. And I don't know that it even exists today i mean certainly we have psychological studies and things that people have tried to do you know we've probably all seen those studies kind of gender heteronormative or or anti you know uh modern gender study type things about why or why do why do women have to laugh more you know in situations like men or we got 10 Mm -hmm. men and 10 women together and we put them in a social situation we studied who laughed at what when and Women are actually looking for someone who's funny. Men are looking for someone who thinks they're funny. You know, we've seen those studies, I think. If men have confidence, women will think that they're funny, even if they're not. Yep. (laughs) And that's bad. (laughs) Tear down the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a woman will calibrate her sense of humor to the man that she finds herself attracted to, and it will all get mixed up together. And she won't know if she thinks he's funny and therefore likes him or likes him and therefore finds him funny. Yep. Well, and we're going to talk about that, Jake. We're getting there. But my point is, 
And that's not funny. Yeah, and that's, and that's not funny. <laughs> Just so in case you were aware. <laughs> um, the point is, you know, I mean, even that stuff, it's like, it's gender studies, it's psycho, like, like yep. humor's hit incidentally in all kinds of places. There's very few people who have just decided, I'm going to nail humor to the wall. So it's hard to kind of trace the history of thought on humor. And I think that that's kind of fun, actually. I don't know why, but I just think humor is kind of incidental to our lives, but really fun. And it's also incidental to the history of intellectual thought, but also kind of fun and or bad. We'll decide by the end of this podcast. So here's my... We're going to decide that it's bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll, All our shows could be, are over. Yeah, our shows are... Yeah, people must be in real suspense. <laughs> Do these guys think humor is acceptable? Uh, okay, here's, here's my theory. And this is not a theory that's new with me. Various people have said this, and it's kind of implicit in what Kant and Schopenhauer and uh, Aquinas and all these people said. But I don't know why I'm throwing in Schopenhauer, because it is implicit in what he said, but we're not going to talk about it, and Schopenhauer is a jerk. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm really curious about Schopenhauer. <laughs> Schopenhauer, if I'm not mistaken, actually used the phrase incongruity, which is the phrase that I'm about to use. So there, that's, that's, that, that's what All Schopenhauer. Right. So here is Nathan. I, you know what? I'm just going to claim it. The first person to ever come up with this theory, as far as you listener are concerned, because you haven't read Schopenhauer. Humor is the surprising and delightful clash in our minds of two things. When two things in our minds suddenly in this firecracker moment, come up against each other and smash together. And those two things are something that's congruous and something that's incongruous, basically. Humor is introducing something incongruous into something that felt congruous. So it, humor is inevitability meeting surprise. It is... The unexpected bursting in on your expectations. Right. And so your brain like glitches out for a second, if you want to think of it that way. Like, ah, I was expecting the guy to just keep walking and he, he slipped on a banana. What? And then for some reason, because of the way that God made us, it makes us laugh. We have this like air goes through our vocal cords and, you know, dopamines or whatever, you know, uh, we feel pleasure and our, our brain like our brain had this pattern and then suddenly it has to complete the pattern with something that it wasn't expecting. It's funny. So humor is the, we'll just stick with some, something congruous suddenly meeting something incongruous or, or sometimes not so suddenly. Uh, sometimes it can be something congruous slowly and in a way that's kind of expected meeting something incongruous, but you're always going to have those two elements. You can't do humor without the expected and the unexpected, the congruous and the incongruous. And to prove this, we'll just go through a bunch of different kinds of humor. So slapstick, I just alluded to. I was expecting the guy to keep walking. That's what would have been congruous. But he slipped on a banana peel. That's funny. Oh, I've seen guys slip on banana peels a million times. So I was expecting that that was going to happen. That's what would have been congruous, actually. He stepped over the banana peel, but he's... Into a manhole. Or, yeah. yeah. That's funny. That actually is that is that is more funny than a banana peel, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting, like how I mean. Well, we can get into this later, but it's interesting even with slapstick how the incongruous sort of becomes the congruous. Like we all have a built-in vocabulary. I guess our generation does at least, maybe not the one under us, of what Looney Tunes should do. That you can actually walk through walls if you're a good guy, but you can't if you're a bad guy. 
things yeah. like that. And so we actually, it's actually not that incongruous to us. You can run across open space if you're a good guy, but if you're a bad guy, you're going to stop, look down, <laughs> and as soon as you look down, you're going to fall. Right. As soon as you acknowledge <laughs> gravity, it takes hold of you. <laughs> um, but good people just blast right on past the laws of physics. <laughs> right. But, it, but it's really interesting to put yourself back in the 1940s mindset of when those things were coming out and to think those people were probably really delighted by the idea that a good guy could just defy gravity and a bad guy couldn't, you know, at least the first dozen times that they saw it. And, and maybe I was too, but I don't re actually remember that because I just, as far as my brain remembers, Looney Tunes has always been with me. So that's slapstick. Now let's talk about sarcasm. It's the same thing, right? You've got the interplay between something that's congruous and something that's incongruous. What's like a sarcastic statement that some, you know, just Wow, that was really great. What a great podcast we just did, Ben. Mm, yeah, Nathan, I loved it. Every second of it. Yeah, I thought you guys did a great job preparing for it and uh, really, you know, set me up to not sound like an idiot. Yeah, we all nailed it. We all nailed it. So that's so simple, right? Why is that funny? I mean, I know, listener, you're <laughs> rolling in your stitches. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there's something that we know, something that is congruous, something that makes sense to us, which is that the podcast in this case sucked. There's this incongruous thing that we're bringing to it, which is we're all saying the opposite. We're all saying it was great. And so our brain tries to conflate those two things and it finds a delightful little space there where the things are kind of exploding against each other. He says one thing, but he means something completely different right. at the same time. So that's sarcasm. That's, I mean, what are the other forms of humor? That's like a joke, you know? That is like a joke joke. Women are crazy these days. Take my wife, please. <laughs> you <laughs> thought I meant consider the idea of my wife. That's what you expected in this old joke from a Catskill Jewish comedians a hundred years ago. But actually I meant like, get rid of her, take her away. <laughs> you didn't expect that, <laughs> did you? Uh, this is what irony is. This is what you know, a comedic premise for a movie. Man, we really think of ghost hunters as being serious Victorian types, but what if they were just schlubs doing a job? Yeah. What if Bill Murray didn't take that job or the idea of ghosts very seriously at all? What if he didn't even look like he wanted to be in the movie? That, that would- <laughs> That would be hilarious. That would be hilarious <laughs> until he refused to- let What if he sat him right, right up next to somebody who actually in real life believes all these things are real and true? Yeah. Which is Dan Aykroyd does, folks, if you didn't know. Let's put those two, two <laughs> things together. They don't belong together. Ghost hunters don't belong in the workaday world. That's weird. That's <clears> funny. And then let's put in a really normal straight guy, straight man up against that who's black. That'll be funny because then it'll even give us some racial drama. And then let's put in a super square nerd who's all in it for the science. Pretty good crew. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty hilarious. Pretty good. I mean, you think of any successful comedy movie. I don't know why Ghostbusters was my go-to, but <laughs> it, it's always going to have something like that at its core. You know, this person, sometimes the situation will be a very straight situation. It's a party, but the Marx Brothers are here and they don't care about parties. <laughs> They're just nihilists who want to run around and destroy everything and make fun of everybody. I didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> The mockery that we were talking, like in the Bible, you know, Psalm 2, these kings, like, they think that they can just defeat God. And that's funny. Like, they think they can marshal their strength 
and somehow be a match for the king of heaven. And our, and our brain tells us kings should be able to marshal their strength and pretty much defeat whatever they want. But then if so, all the kings of the earth unite, uh, who can stand against them? Like, to my mind, that's pretty cool. But then suddenly the camera pans back and we realize, oh, they're oh. marshaling their strength against the God who made them and made the whole universe and sustains it all every second, who's giving them br- every breath that they're taking. Mm-hmm as they plan against him. Exactly. So once again, Congress, incongruous, boom, comedy. Homer Simpson, you know, like dads should be dignified. They should say smart things. They should be helpful to their children. What if there was a dad who wasn't that? Right. <laughs> and every year, Homer Simpson, I think, I, I, I love the original Simpsons, but man, it's lost so much of its sting even when you go back and watch the old Simpsons because it's like our culture kind of just accepts that dads suck now so there's nothing all that well you watch the really old like the season one simpsons which is now like 30 years old the joke is like bart said damn i mean that's like the joke that's like that's the one joke like with within that minute of screen time like he said a a kid said a bad word (laughs) how incongruous and it's like that's not funny anymore because kids say bad words like yeah there's nothing there's nothing I think actually a lot of times when you when you look at comedy that's passe, it can teach you what was congruous and incongruous about that time. You think about Barney Fife and the Andy Griffith show. It's like, it's not that. I, I like Barney and I think Don Knotts is a great comic creation uh, actor and stuff. I, I, I think Barney's still pretty funny. But how much more funny was he in a time when people actually respected the law? When people actually thought a guy with a sheriff's badge... Is, is pretty dignified, and I accept that that's true. When they weren't watching the Andy Griffith show because they were hungering for somebody in the whole wide world who bore their authority with dignity, but when actually that's what they expected somebody in that role to be like. And so Don Knotts just makes a face or reveals that he's a little scared, jumps back when there's a loud noise, and people were falling out of their seats back then because it's like a guy with a sheriff's badge is scared that's hilarious that's my brain can't put the incongruity and the congruity together and now it's just kind of like well don Knotts is still funny enough well well, it's like jake was saying now they're going for a different incongruity if they watch it they're going for the incongruity of Of andy griffith of andy griffith yeah yeah Yeah. having dignity it's like we're all don Knotts, and that, that is if you talk to anybody that goes back and watches andy griffith that's why yeah they actually go back because yeah they want to see the incongruity of a man who bears his authority with dignity and grace. Mm-hmm. But Andy was just the straight man. He was just the everyman. He was more than that, but still. Like, Basically. Yeah, um, I mean, there's still comedy to be found, but a lot of the comedy is actually, Andy's this guy that's beyond any of our expectations for what a dad and a sheriff could be. And for some reason, he's putting up with this right. guy who's just like us. Whereas it used to be like, we're all like Andy in the way we- We all know people like Andy. We we all expect people like Andy to be in positions like Andy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's what you want. That's good. You know, that's what the sheriff's like. That's what the teachers like. That's what the whoever is like. And the fact that Don Knotts just dropped his sheriff's star on the ground—hilarious. Yep, he's got to load up his one bullet and shoot himself in the foot. Hilarious. I mean, it, it really is like it's not because people were dumb that they thought those really simple things were funny. It's because they were part of a different world and a different established culture and norm. So mm. we're going to get to that. I mean, comedy is and humor 
help us establish our norms and tell us what our norms are, which is part of what's good about it and part of what's bad of it. We'll get there. I want to. I'm trying to think if there's any other forms of comedy that we need to prove are. You know, there's observational comedy. There's there's Jim Gaffigan saying, "I've noticed this about hot pockets." And what's funny about that is, once again, I think congruity and in incongruity. You know, uh, we've all kind of noticed those things about hot pockets that he says in the routine, but we've never taken them that seriously. We've never thought that passionately about them. Here's a guy that's thinking as passionately about French fries as I think about my job or my child or my lover or whatever it is. And and so there's this element of... He's observed something that we've all observed at one point or another, but just haven't stopped to think carefully or deeply enough about, to, you know... Right. And he's just going to paint it large and suddenly we're all going to laugh about it. Well, and you can't underestimate the importance of the congruous element in comedy. There has to be something that feels like it's it's of a pattern, something that, fe- that feels inevitable in order not just to disrupt it, but uh, I don't know how to say this, but, you know, so there's like the Monty Python school of comedy, which I really like, the just the absurdism for absurdism's sake, the kind of Dada-esque, like, the world is just broken, and so I'm hitting myself with a dead fish comedy. <laughs> <laughs> that there's that there's that kind of thing, but actually, what I think most people laugh at is something that's much more something that feels surprising and yet does have that element of inevitability. Like, oh yeah, I eat hot pockets too, and they do burn my mouth. And it's surprising that he was able to put it that way, and that he was able to draw attention to it suddenly in a way that I didn't expect. But I also have this feeling of recognition. Mm-hmm. And I think that extends to all forms of comedy. You know, if a guy is walking along and then suddenly he floats into the air, Monty Python might be able to make that funny, but that's not as easy to make funny as the inevitability of he slipped on a banana peel and then physics took over. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. You want to feel like the chain was my chain of thought was disrupted, but it was also completed in a different way than I expected. It wasn't that it wasn't completed, it's that it was. Maybe that's the best way to say what I'm trying to get at here. It's not that my chain of thought was just blown up, although that can be funny sometimes. It's, but what's mm-hmm. really funny for people is my chain of thought was completed in a way that is different than. Well, my chain of thought is blown up is really the kind of, it's like late stage comedy. It's the kind of comedy that can only come in reference to other comedy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. When you've when you've played the banana peel joke so many times and the alternative you've built on the alternatives to the banana peel joke where oh you thought you saw the banana peel the whole time. You thought he was gonna step on the banana peel and fall. He stepped on the banana peel or over the banana peel into a manhole. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Now we've built on that. Now we've built on that. Now what's gonna happen? He's gonna step on the banana peel and instead of falling he's gonna float off into space because we've run out of things to say and right. ways to to complete that thought and kind of what it's led us to is this nihilistic place of, well, that thought's not able to be completed actually, because nothing actually makes all that much sense. Right. And I think that that stuff, if that's all you've got is bad. I, I Ryan Johnson. Yeah. If that's, yeah. This <clears throat> is like, let's just tear things down. I think in small doses, it can be funny. And if you've ever listened to our skits or anything, you know that I have a soft spot for the Dada-esque just, uh, <laughs> Silly things happening with their own logic, actually. Right. Because you end up inventing a different logic. It's kind of like every Monty Python skit has its own logic with it. Right. Right. And But the best ones, you feel there. It's like a Jackson Pollock painting. 
it's not interesting because it's abstract. It's interesting because you see shapes and patterns mm-hmm. in the abstraction that he right. made. And so, well, in that in that sense, it's not different than clouds, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good analogy. Then, um, than clouds. Mm. Yeah, and it, there are all kinds of ways that even even um, even certain kind of discordant music can have its own beauty and represent the way that God made the world. All you have to do is go out in spring and listen to the spring peepers. Mm-hmm. And there's something wild and crazy and discordant and ugly, but also beautiful about it. Like there are places for these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the and there's a place, a place to say, man, the world really is pretty absurd and doesn't always make sense to us. And sometimes terrible things happen. And I think there's a place for that too. I think if it's all nihilism, it's if it's all absurdism, then that can be self-defeating and not that funny. Hashtag Rick and Morty, hashtag Tim Family Eric, guy. hashtag some of that stuff. Yeah, a lot of sort of alternative comedy, but then alternative comedy that's sort of become mainstream in the last 10, 20 years is that kind of stuff. And it's it's ultimately pretty self-defeating. At the same time, I'm, I have to admit that every 10th episode of Chip and Lance, I just want them to both scream on fire. And I want, I am amused personally by finding the patterns and then breaking those patterns of the screams of Chip and Lance while they're on fire. And some of our listeners liked that one and some of them <laughs> didn't have a lot of patience for it. Some of some some of them like that at least a at least a few. Our greatest comedic triumph ever. To take that from our oeuvre, it's like if that's all we did, then A, nobody would listen to us and 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 B it'd be really stupid and self-defeating. Like the reason that that works in context, if it works, if you want to argue that it works is because is precisely because we don't do that all the time. It's because we've set an expectation that these shows are going to have order and that they're going to go somewhere and that something interesting is going to happen. And so here we are gleefully deflating that expectation. Not this time. Not this time. This time. It's a waste of your time. <laughs> you, you, it's you, going nowhere and we've got nothing to say. Right. <laughs> and we're, we're going to do seven minutes and then it's going to get silent for a second and you're going to think, oh, it's finally over. And then it's going to start up again. And how, how many times can you do that until like people don't think it's funny and then you keep doing it and they start to laugh again? Like, I think these are worthwhile questions to explore. <laughs> but they only exist, just like Jackson Pollock only exists in real painting. In, in relationship to real painting, to normal painting. Jackson Pollock's not real. You know what I'm saying, Jake. Jackson Pollock doesn't really work unless there's a Michelangelo. The music of John Smith doesn't really work unless there's a Mozart. The weird repeating patterns of a Philip Glass don't really work unless we have a vocabulary of music mm-hmm. that doesn't just repeat like that. Radiohead doesn't work until there's the Beatles. Right. Right. Exactly. And s- yeah. Until someone's given us melody, we can't be like, done with it. Um, right. It doesn't mean we can't do interesting, challenging things. It doesn't mean there's not a place for artistic experiments. Blah, 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 blah. You get what I'm saying. I think we've covered most of comedy uh, and, and made the case that it is the interplay between the incongruous and the congruous. I mean, satire, We I guess we didn't specifically mention satire, although we kind of touched on it with Homer Simpson and things like that. You think of a Jane Austen novel. It's like, Mr. Collins should be this way. A man should act like this. He's acting like that. This woman doesn't know herself. You know, Mrs. Whoever, she thinks she's interesting and actually she's really boring. And Jane Austen's gonna, you know, in something not unlike our fire episode, 
Yeah, we're just like Jane Austen. That's right, <laughs> listener. Record the boring dialogue and see how long she, I mean, Jane Austen, I think in one of her novels, I forget which one, she's doing a little experiment where she can see how long she can make a boring character keep going. It's Emma, right? It's the woman that Emma insults. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was her. Yeah. Um, and, and Jane Austen, the movies always cut that woman down. And the woman now always becomes more sympathetic in the movies. But in the book, at least, you kind of understand why Emma, you, you are with Mr. Knightley in rebuking and disciplining her, but you sort of, you do understand how annoying that woman is uh, because Jane Austen. And why, and you understand why anybody there might feel some relief when Emma actually. She just popped the bubble. Yeah. Is there an element of we hate stupid people in, or we hate dads in Homer Simpson, or we hate stupid people in Jane Austen? Is there that mockery that Plato saw? Yeah, sure. But I don't think that it's always that or just that in any of these things. I don't think you can broadly say that that's what humor always has to be, that it always has to include anger, that it always has to include malice, that it always has to be derisive. I think what it does always have to do is contain an element of the congruous and an element of the incongruous, an element of expectation and an element of surprise. I don't know. The example that we were talking about, we just went for a walk and talked about this before we hit record, folks. The first thing that people laugh at as a baby is like peekaboo, right? And it's got those, it's actually got those elements for a baby. A baby's like, there's a blanket in front of my face. And I think that that blanket will continue into perpetuity because I'm a dumb baby. And then suddenly it's like, it's my mom's face and I really love her. And she's smiling and saying something. This is great. <laughs> I didn't expect that. How incongruous. That's, that's what peekaboo is. That's how a parent bonds with their child by giving them something that is expected and unexpected. If you just yell in your child's face, nonsense things, maybe they'll like it. I guess that is true of some children at some stages. But what they really like is to be surprised and then to be surprised again and then to like their brains actually have enough of a built in pattern creation thing that they can they can just keep doing it. They can just really enjoy a game of peekaboo. And I think it is my assertion, my philosophical and theological assertion on this podcast is that that's how God made us. And I don't think that you have to look very far to see that that's true. I think it's obvious. I don't think that we have to do much to prove this. I think it's obvious that God wants us to fill the earth and subdue it, which means finding the patterns and things, which means seeing what's inevitable, which means seeing that if I plant corn, it will come up this way. If I do this, this will happen. If I don't do this, this won't happen or this will happen. It also means God also wants us to be astonished and delighted by his work. He wants us to be there are surprises out there. There are surprises. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know, it can be as complicated as finding, you know, studying uh, quantum physics. Yeah. All the patterns that you thought worked suddenly, you know, there are these weird, odd exceptions. And how do you make sense of that? Two, this, this uh, cute, fluffy thing is actually a master predator mm -hmm. who also actually might be ridiculous and run itself into a wall. You yeah, know, like this cute fluffy thing was foiled by my laser pointer. <clears throat> but also it's the most stealthy killing machine that God's made. Like, right. God built the reason that dogs and cats give us delight is because God built surprise and inevitability 
into them. And, and it's just, it extends to things like sunsets, right? Like I know every day there's going to be a sunset, but I didn't know that there was going to be this sunset with these colors, with these clouds. God wants us to be, you know, I don't want to take this like too far and be cheesy about it, but I think that God wants us to be astonished by his work and he wants us to expect things from him. He wants us to see patterns. He wants us to see inevitabilities. He wants us to perceive him as inevitable and perceive him as surprising. And that's something that we're built to do as we take delight in our creator, as we glorify him. And as we take delight in each other, we're meant, you know, a parent delights in a young child precisely because the kid is doing inevitable kid things, saying things that are completely bonkers off the wall. Surprising. That's what's funny. That's what's cute about a toddler who's just learning the language. They mangle it. Mm -hmm. And it's like my adult brain sees what was inevitable there and what was blown up. Yep. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's funny. So there's a quote that people like to throw around sometimes in Christian circles, something like there won't be humor in heaven because humor is about mitigating the tension of the fall. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the gap between sin and righteousness. Right. Primarily the way things are and the way things should be. Well, everything Mm -hmm. will then be as it ought to be. And I think that that quote kind of goes back to Plato. Like, we need to mock Homer Simpson because dads fail, and we don't like that because we're built to understand that dads are awesome, but then they're not. And so we have to, like, mitigate that tension, and that's what laughter is, and there's something kind of mocking in it because that's all we have to do with our fallenness. That's that's that's. But what about peekaboo? I mean, are, are you going to argue that it was only after the fall that a child's mind is so small and finite that it would think that the blanket would continue into perpetuity and then be delighted by the face of its mother? Or could we maybe accept that delight, astonishment, inevitability, pattern, stages of growth, stages of understanding have been built into the universe and into God's plan for us? And will continue. And will continue. Forever. I mean, I, I don't want to be all corny about it. I don't want to be all gospel coalition-y about it. But I really think, like, in the new heaven and in the new earth, that's what it is. Like, we're going to fill the world and we're going to subdue it. And we're just going to keep discovering new things. And we're going to keep understanding more about the patterns and the underlying structures that govern everything that God has built into the universe. And because God's infinite and because God's awesome and because he's unknowable, you know, because he is so vastly beyond us. There will always be things that will surprise us. I had an expectation and it was foiled. It turned out God was just a little bit bigger than I understood. It turned out his creation was just a little bit weirder. You know, I mean, I, I just think we are built with a mechanism to take delight in that. We're built with this weird animalistic response to it. You know, this weird guttural, like, air goes through my vocal car- cords in these sharp bursts because I take sudden delight in something that is both inevitable and surprising. And I just, you know, I mean, who really cares? Maybe it'll be replaced by something better. I think God wants us to have those, those experiences, mm-hmm. basically. So if that's what humor is, if that's what it does, let's talk about its uses. Let's talk about its abuses. I think its uses, well, we could talk about so many things. To get back to the idea of Jackson Pollock and stuff, Jackson Pollock only exists in relation to real paintings. Abstract music only exists in relation to music. Humor, surprise, only exists in relation to the inevitable. 
So humor actually tells us a lot about what we think is inevitable and yeah. tells us a lot about, I should say, it helps us define what we think is inevitable. You know, when we all laugh at Homer Simpson, we're accepting a notion of what a dad should be. But as we find delight in Homer Simpson over time, maybe our idea of what a dad should be changes a mm-hmm. little bit. So there's a use there. There's also an abuse. It's useful for God to laugh at, to establish, oh yeah, you kings suck. You're nothing. It's incongruous that you would come after me. It's ridiculous. But you can see how that kind of mockery could be abused, you know, when, 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 when a modern comic laughs at a Christian woman for wanting to have lots of kids and the audience laughs, I don't have anything particular in mind. I'm just coming up with like a random, let's say we're making fun of conservatives thing. It's like, we all accept that it's ridiculous that a woman would want to have lots of kids. We're actually establishing what's normal by establishing Mm -hmm. what's ridiculous. When you say that, it kind of makes humor sound like it's just destructive and like it's, it's actually not helpful. Like all it can really do is tear down. But I don't think that that's true. I think it is actually, I think it actually, actually one of its uses is to establish what is rational, what is normal, and what is hierarchical, for lack of a better word. You see this in a family, right? Like a good family all sort of tends to laugh at the same things. And usually they're keying off of, dad because dad's actually the one who's establishing like at the end of the day the buck stops here this is what our family considers to be rational and this is what our family considers to be irrational so if you've ever known a proud family that mock a bunch of things it's because those boundary points have been put in bad places if you've ever known a family that's absolutely delightful and fun to be around it's generally because those family those boundaries have been put in good places and if you've ever watched a couple develop together and merge together you know in marriage or in dating or over the years of of marriage what what you will observe 100 percent of the time is in a good situation the woman will gradually sort of merge into the man adopt his sense of humor and he'll bend a little bit you know it's just like everything else he'll bend a little bit towards her and there's mm-hmm. certain things where she'll just say nope Yep. Not crossing that line. That's not funny. And it never will be. <laughs> but also you'll just watch like she'll sort of submit. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what the word is, but she'll just sort of naturally want to change. And it's not anything that anyone's doing. She just learns to key off of her husband, right? Right. So if she's always keying off of him, because her job is to be helpful to him. She's learning how to complete his sentences, how to complete his sandwiches mm-hmm. uh, that was funny <laughs> was my was amazing funny. sexist humor yeah uh you know what how to anticipate how to be helpful to him and that's that naturally develops sympathy mm-hmm. it's going to also mean keying off his sense of humor and his jokes right and if you watch a pastoral staff the head pastor is generally going to be the person who defines what's funny for that group if you watch a business, it's the CEO. If you watch what? I mean, I don't have to keep multiplying. A coach. A coach. Yeah, it just doesn't matter. Any a teacher in a classroom, basically, you know, the authority mm-hmm. in, figure in any given situation is somebody that everybody begins to learn to key off of, and that's because that's how the world works. Yeah. This isn't original with us because lots of studies have been done to show how 
terrible this is. You, you know, I mean, all the, the original thing here, maybe in our thinking is we're just saying that's great. That's how it should work. But people have proved it in order to be sour pusses about it. You yep. know, people will get uh, they, they've done so many studies, you know, men and women are both looking for they, they ask, what, what are you looking for in a partner? Men and women both say a partner with a sense of humor. So it's like, okay, what's the difference? They figure out what the difference is. The difference is women want to laugh at somebody. That's what they think a great sense of humor is. Someone who makes me laugh. Men define a great sense of humor as, as someone who laughs at my jokes. Someone, obviously, you have a great sense of humor. You think I'm funny. <laughs> and I think that's pretty true. I mean, I think I, you know, I got married within the last couple of years and I don't know that I ever thought too well. No, I did. I'm self-aware enough and have done comedy and stuff for long enough to be very aware of the fact that it was important to me. Like, is she going to laugh at my jokes? I'm going to be actually, I remember somebody years ago saying to me, Nathan, marriage is about sanctification. You shouldn't marry someone who thinks you're funny because like you need to grow. Uh, you know, okay, I guess. But <laughs> I'm certainly glad I didn't follow that advice because I just think I'd be marriage is about sanctification, aka sanctification is about unhappiness. Right. You should also marry someone that that's, that's ugly, so that you can be sanctified, be sanctified into loving what's on the inside. It's like uh, it's ridiculous that's not how this works. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad I'm I'm personally I'm quite glad that I married someone. Stop who, fighting against the way God made the world, people. Right. <laughs> Stop doing it. Stop doing it with sex. Stop. Uh, well, and so humor, I, I guess the broader point here, humor helps us establish what's normal. It helps us establish what's abnormal. It helps us establish what's congruous, what's incongruous in any social situation. It is therefore pretty hierarchical. And I think that's fine. I think that's good. I think that that's, that's pretty normal. I mean, what are we going to do? Not key off of dad? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I actually think you do see this, like when you see a bad marriage, one of the signs, you know, I mean, we've all had that, you know, aunt and uncle who are going to get a divorce and every one of the ways that we all see it coming is because he makes a dumb joke and she just rolls her eyes and it completely undercuts him and isn't there for it. And it's really, or he stopped making jokes. Yeah. And if you're in a, in a home where the, where the dad just doesn't bother, stops making jokes you know, you've got a really bad and unhealthy relationship there. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one of the ways they're that called dad jokes for a reason. Yeah. Every dad slips into dad jokes and his own sense of humor in his household wants his household to be a place where he can say the dumb things that come in and out of his head. And he either is creating space for that to happen. And the kids are keying off of it and think it's funny. And mom may think it's dumb and roll her eyes, but also thinks it's funny. You know, it just, you know, there can be degrees, but at the end of the day, a healthy family is going to have a lot of dad jokes. Right. And I like back when they were called and jokes. And a lot of inside jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be great if we could get to the point in our culture where they're, they, they're, we just start calling them jokes again. I think we have to call them dad jokes because we're uncomfortable with dad being in charge and because we're uncomfortable somehow with the fact that not every dad is a professional comedian. Yeah, And so it's like, we need to humorously mitigate the tension that we feel about the fact that dad is dad's jokes are stupid. Right. I was like, actually, <laughs> most jokes are stupid and yeah. it's just fine. You can, you, can, okay. you can just yeah. submit to dad's jokes and just call them jokes. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> dad's not a professional comedian. Dad's a brick mason. But yeah. you know what? Yeah. It's, it's great. 
And by the way, I don't have any problem with wh- women were designed to or ro- ro- roll their eyes. It's just roll your eyes and smile. That's right. The, exactly. That's the, tr- that's, that's, that's the ball game yeah. right there. There's nothing fun about a woman who doesn't roll her eyes a little bit. Yeah. Woman has to be a challenge, you know. You can't just laugh at anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> gotta make you work for it. <laughs> make it work for it a little bit. Yeah, we establish what's normal. We establish what's good. We establish hierarchy. We establish moral order. Uh, we we getting back to what Aquinas was talking about. What Thomas, my wife, would be very mad. He's not Aquinas. That's where he's from, guys. His last name wasn't Aquinas. He was just from the town of Aquinas, and his name was Thomas. I've gotten this speech a lot in my marriage. Love you, sweetie. Anyway. So Aquinas. Yeah, so Aquinas. Aquinas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Aquinas. That was not a dad joke. That was a joke. Yeah, that was a that joke. was yeah. a joke. No such thing as dad jokes. Just if, a joke. If you joke, joke. Aquinas talks about how, like, we're just calibrating that way. I'll read the quote again. Now, those who lack playfulness are sinful. Those who never say anything to make you smile or are grumpy with those who do are sinful. I don't know if I'd quite go that far, although... I yeah, I, I would go that far. Yeah, because if you really were that, like if you really just some people are more well, serious. That's fine. Let's just go back to the most basic thing, right? The father and mother that refuses to play peekaboo with their kids yeah. is a monster, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's work out from there. Does scripture say it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of laughter? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We need to be sober, right, about life in the world, but that doesn't mean we need to be morose. It also says that a joyful heart is good medicine or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? Proverbs 17, something or other. Right. And so, okay, if we can accept that it's actually good, like how do you court a woman without laughter and humor? How do you raise children without laughter? How do you raise children that you don't laugh at, Mm -hmm. like, and laugh with? Like, okay, if we can start there, then we can get to a place where we can say, no, to be good humored is part of what it means to simply be godly. godly. Well, also, insofar as we've established that life is full of congruities and incongruities, to be a person who just doesn't acknowledge any of the incongruities is to be a liar. That's right. Well, because it's like it's like pretending that there's nothing you there's nothing that came at you that you didn't see coming. It's really like pretending that it's yeah. that, that you're not fine. It's, it's you're not about junior yeah, hires, it's one right? of it's one of two things, right? It's either I saw everything coming, and so therefore nothing can possibly be funny because I am. I am. It's all Congress I'm, to me. I'm, I have the bigger picture. I'm, omni- I'm omniscient. Right. Yep. Or nothing in this world makes any sense whatsoever. God is not in his heaven and there are no con- congruities and everything is stupid and therefore nothing can possibly be funny because it's all. It's all a joke. Therefore, there are no jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And therefore nothing is funny and I'm going to paint my nails black. Well, and it, just like extreme leftism and extreme rightism both end in totalitarianism i think absurdist comedians who go too far and become nihilistic kind of end in the same place as As the stoics as the stoics who just refuse to laugh at anything they both end up circling around to i just don't think anything's funny actually because Because everything's meaningless everything's meaningless and everything's stupid and it's not funny and if you look at the people who make things like Rick and Morty, a show that I think is nihilistic, evil, and I hate, they're not happy people. They're not people that actually laugh right. at that much. And the things that they do laugh are depraved. And it's because they've accepted that life is so nihilistic and meaningless that they just have to keep pushing and pushing to find something that will surprise them. And it's like, guys, just accept that there's a moral order and then you can laugh at Barney Fife. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a lot more humor in your world if you just accept God's moral order and let 
biblical principles define your expectations. It's why I think uh, junior hires are the hardest people. Junior high boys in particular are some of the hardest people to make laugh because they're super scared. They've just realized the world is full of incongruities and their only response is to try to be cool and pretend like everything's congruous. Yeah. Nothing surprises me. And so like they're some of the most obnoxious people and they're some of the most humorless people in their way because they have to just pretend like they expected well, anything. And then they're always like with that, they're always grasping to find the, they're, they're desperate to laugh at it. So they're always grasping for the places where it's socially acceptable mm-hmm. to just let go right. and really laugh at something. Yeah. And that can be expressed itself as vulgarity. It can just yeah. express itself as painful awkwardness. It expresses itself ver- not very often as something that's all that pleasant for those of us who are uh, adults to put up with. I think some of it's well, necessary. Yeah, necessary pros- lots of striking out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of like, I think I've calibrated with everybody. Now I'm going to say something that is completely ridiculous and off the wall and everybody's going to think I'm stupid. Right. And at the same time, I have to protect myself from calibrating with everybody because, because I, I might actually say something really stupid. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what's stupid or smart anymore. So what do I do? I just kind of pretend like it's all stupid, I guess. It's like, yeah, we can all psych ourselves into, you know, if we can get it down to about three or four of us, we can all psych ourselves into thinking everything's stupid and funny. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, nothing is funny. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be one or the other. Yeah, and the bigger, if someone, the, if someone in charge wants you to laugh at something, well, that it's definitely not funny. And then we, right. And then we'd better though figure out the pecking order among us really quickly, so that we have somebody that we know can draw the lines for us. Right. But we're all still sort of fighting for the, you know. And, and oftentimes that person is not the person that is actually objectively funny in the group. Right. No. It's usually just the biggest, baddest, the person. Best looking, yeah. You know, most likely to get the girl. Yeah, in your average like junior high classroom, the jock's gonna get a lot more laughs than the clown actually. Yeah, the clown is just an annoying guy that is like farting in the corner. The the jock is. We all have to laugh at him because we're keying off of him, which is really annoying if you're the class clown. Not that I have any personal experience in any of these things. Um, My funniest days were in middle school. How about yours, Nathan? (laughs) (laughs) My middle school years was an existential nightmare of dread and no one liking me or thinking I was very funny, but just thinking I was weird and stupid. So where were we? I I guess to circle back to what I think Ben was saying about, you know, the whole uh, Aquinas, Mr. Aquinas's quote about uh, those who lack playfulness are sinful. Life is full of incongruities. The way that we mitigate and work through those incongruities is with humor. That is not actually, I think, the opposite of sobriety. A group of sober men going into battle or working together on a job, building a house, being on a pastoral staff, being in a writer's room, doing a podcast together, whatever. Lots of laughs. Yeah. There's a lot of laughs because there's a lot of incongruities and there's a lot of expectations and there's a lot of social tensions and physical tensions and Thing, ways that people need to calibrate. There's where people are healthily calibrating. There's going to be the inter, there's going to be a great interplay of things that are congruous and things that are incongruous. Incongruous. And I'm sorry, folks. I know I've said both those words in weird with weird inflection throughout the podcast. I am so sorry. You're just going to see that all the time. A group of women getting together for you know a tea or whatever it is that women do in their spare time. There's going to be that 
too. You know, it's just, it's how we interact. And so if you're the humorless person that refuses to acknowledge any of the incongruities, you're not doing anybody any favors. And I think we've all been the person who isn't part of the group mind meld, who doesn't really understand what's funny or just doesn't think it's that funny. You know, I mean, we've all been on the outside of that and it's painful and it sucks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's because the other people are being selfish. Sometimes it's not. There's there's all kinds of situations where everybody else is laughing and you're not and doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. But But sometimes it makes you a horrible person. Sometimes it does make you. You need to at least ask the question, is it me or is it them? And sometimes it'll be you. So those are the uses of humor. They reinforce the moral order, provide tension relief, uh, provide release, provide fun, provide calibration as we navigate the congruities and incongruities and delights of life. Let's talk about the abuses of humor. I think they're pretty evident in everything we've been saying. Humor invites vulgarity. It's very natural for humor to be vulgar because we want to, the more incongruous something is, and yet the more inevitable, the more funny it is, what's more incongruous than spicing it up with a, a little language or then talking about sex or then talking about bodily functions? These things are things that we all know. We don't talk about There that. should be a privacy veil around certain things. Mm-hmm. We all know we don't use that kind of language. So it's easy, it's cheap. And it's simple for someone to make you laugh by violating those taboos, by creating a little extra incongruity. And it's what every high school boy learns is, I may not naturally be funny, but boy, if I indicate that that person was doing something sexual that we don't talk about, then... Everybody's going to laugh. Everybody's going to laugh because we don't talk about that. It's in Congress. And it's all fresh and new. And it's all fresh and new. And it's easy. That's bad. The Bible says, don't be vulgar. I mean, it literally says, what's, what's the passage where it just says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There should be no coarse jesting or silly talk. Mm-hmm. Is that Ephesians? I think it's Ephesians. Yeah, I think it's Ephesians. And that's, I think what it's a lot, that's not the only thing it's referring to, certainly. And we'll get to some other things, but I think that's a lot of it is it's actually easier to be funny with vulgarity. Uh, it is also actually easier to be funny with meanness and i think there are there's a lot of good uses for mockery i think we've looked at some biblical ones i think jane austen is a good use of mockery i think there's all kinds of places to be self-deprecating or even other deprecating but again the high school boy quickly learns that an easy way to cheap laugh is to just put somebody down just make somebody look stupid even when they don't actually deserve it or it's something that's completely outside of their control and that's just that's unkind it's vulgar, it's cheap, it's easy, and we've all been on the wrong side of it, and we don't like it. But we've also all felt the surge of power when we're on the side of the person doing the assaulting or whatever, and we've all been guilty of it. And it's bad. It's just, what do you want me to say? I don't have anything deep to say. It's not kind, it's not nice, it's not godly. But it's easy, and it's incongruous. Mm-hmm. Like, just pointing out that someone's fat, that's more incongruous than not. <laughs> you know? Yep. It's easy to get a laugh that way. Just to... There's lots of things that shouldn't be acknowledged. There's lots of things that should have a privacy veil around them, actually. Yes, the Bible's earthy. Yes, people shouldn't be prudes. Yes, we should acknowledge that there's this thing called sex. But also, this thing called sex happens in a bedroom between a man and a woman. We don't need to talk about everything. We don't need to talk about everything that happens in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. It's not what God made us to do. There are things to be ashamed of. And it's easy because of the nature of how comedy and humor works. It's easy for it to violate those things and cheap, you know, as, as, as someone who appreciates humor, I don't appreciate that because 
it's cold. It's 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 easy, you know. Like it's it works. It's easy, and so work a little harder. Don't just throw an f bomb in there because it'll make your joke funny. Work until you have a joke that's actually got a punchline that's really funny. I, I think anybody who does any kind of comedy is guilty of that because it is so easy. And then I think the third thing I would say is. Well, I'm thinking I'm going back to Psalm 1 now, not Psalm 2, but, you know, it starts, don't sit in the seat of scoffers, don't join in with mockers, this whole thing. Mocking and scoffing are bad. And that is what I think happens when someone is a nihilist and just assumes that everything is, in fact, ultimately incongruous, to use our terms, that we've been working with. It's when someone just assumes that everything's a joke, that, in fact, I can be flippant because nothing really matters. We're all going to die and it'll probably be of cancer. It's just bad. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, I think, I'm sure many of our listeners will remember this, has a section where he says, good humor is one of the things that you want to avoid, you know, as, as our, the patient, as, as Screwtapes or what's the, as Wormwood's patient gets to know people, like, it will be good for him. It will be healthy for his soul to have good humor. But what you want to move, do is move him past that into, this attitude that I don't have the quote in front of me, but C.S. Lewis describes it very well. I think he just calls it flippancy. Uh, he says, where we, all, where we all, there's no actual jokes, but we all just assume that the joke's already been made. And we cop a posture as if we don't even have to say what the joke is. We just know there is one. Like the middle school boys again. Like the middle school boys again. Like mm-hmm. we don't even have to say why the boy that we all pick on is stupid. We just, we just know he is. We just know he is because he's stupid. Of course he's stupid. And it's funny. And it's funny. I was like, no, uh, you got to find something, guys. Like, he probably is stupid, but, you know, do your homework if you're going to make this boy feel bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the lesson. That's the lesson. <laughs> That's the lesson. <laughs> you should never assume that the joke is, has, is, has already been made. You can't be flippant about life. Things matter. Pain hurts, as the great Patrick Swayze said in the great uh, cinematic masterpiece Roadhouse. Pain hurts. Actually, <laughs> no, he said pain don't hurt. Okay, don't take the lesson from Roadhouse. <laughs> do it, do it, do it wow. anti-Roadhouse and see that pain hurts, human life matters, God is in his heaven, sin is real, God is real, the consequences of sin are real. There's a lot of things that are very serious about our life and things that we should approach soberly. So you can't just go into a situation assuming in some smarmy, proud way that you already see what's stupid and what's incongruous about that. That's called being a scoffer. It's called being a mocker. In Psalm 1, the template for all Christian living, that's the opposite of being the guy who's nourished by the scriptures, who in everything he does prospers. There's that guy. And then there's the people that just assume everything's stupid and are scoffers and mockers. It's like, those are the two. That, th- those are, that's Batman and that's Joker. Those, it's just interesting that that would be put in opposition. The one would be put in yeah. opposition yeah to the other i've got the lewis quote by the way yeah go for it flippancy is the best of all in the first place it's very economical Only- anyone doesn't know this is a demon talking in the conceit yeah. of the yeah that's right senior demon giving advice to a junior demon right uncle to nephew flippancy is the best of all in the first place it's very economical only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue or indeed about anything else any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they've already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man, the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know, the enemy being God. And it is quite free from the dangerous inherent in the other sources of laughter. It's a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens 
instead of sharpening the intellect. And it excites no affection between those who practice it. That is something that I just think everybody should have to read. Because that is so much of, we have such a high diet of comedy in our culture today. YouTube videos, late night hosts, whatever, you know, every day you see a little bit of comedy. And so much of it is that, you know, Stephen Colbert doesn't have to bother to make a joke about Trump. He just assumes that it's funny. Trump's the joke. Trump's the joke. And it's like, there's all kinds of things that you can joke about about Trump. I, let's not pretend like there are not. Right. But for you to just assume that the joke's already been made in this flippant, callous, nihilistic manner is really destructive. And that's a Judd Apatow movie. And that's a, I mean, I don't know what the modern things are, I guess. That's Rick and Morty. That's so much of this stuff wants to invite you into a ultimately meaningless nihilistic world where we just laugh at everything. And there's something fundamentally different about that than a great comedy or a great humorist or a great piece of humor, which says this is normative. This is abnormative, if that's a word. And isn't it weird how those two things interact and isn't it sad or isn't it delightful or isn't it something Mm -hmm. you can do that i think i think you should do that i think everybody does do that i don't think we should pretend like it's something we don't do i think everybody's got humor in their lives and it should be there you know i don't think that there's any system of self-governance governance that is ultimately going to be successful that's uh going to preclude humor from your life or from your existence. It just is. It's just one of those things. It's not going away. Sorry, Plato. Sorry, Aristotle. It's, it's happening. It's, mm-hmm. it's inevitable. It happens whether we want it to or not. We laugh at things. We laugh at things in social situations to, to figure out what's congruous and incongruous, to establish hierarchy, to enter into hierarchy, to be part of things. To, it's, just, if, you know, it's, it's not so much a question of should Christians give themselves to humor or should they not. They already are. It's just part of who we are. Now, be godly. The humor that flows out of you will be something that's flowing out of rationality and godliness and morality. And don't give yourself to flippancy, to scoffing, to mocking, to malice, and to vulgarity. Those are the bad things, right? I don't know. Is there mm-hmm. anything else? Is there anything else we need to say about this? Well, you might. This might be too much of a rabbit trail. But what's the difference between? Mocking and mocking, you know, (laughs) godly mocking. I think number one difference is, is there a good moral framework assumed? In other words, Jane Austen is mocking at things that deserve Mm -hmm. to be mocked. Stephen Colbert is not. Okay, so that's an easy one. I think the second point is C.S. Lewis's point. Are we assuming that the joke's actually Mm -hmm. already been made or are we making it? So many modern writers, so many modern filmmakers, so many modern content creators, if they do Mr. Collins and in, in their version of Pride and Prejudice, it's because all priests are stupid. Mm-hmm. Jane Austen doesn't assume that. She just thinks it's funny that this priest is stupid in a way that we recognize that priests are susceptible yeah. to be stupid. But she's not saying that every priest is stupid. Proof of that is that her dad is a pastor, her brothers were pastors, and she has good pastors in other books. Right. And Collins not- is an exception. And she's an exception that I think was a real one, mm-hmm. one that she noticed and one that she wanted to skewer. But there are places where Jane Austen's pretty mean. And I think you could, you could at least make an argument like maybe she shouldn't have done it. But spe- specifically, I'd say in her personal letters, if you ever read them, she can just be devastating. And if you think that there are real people that some of these characters might have been based on, it's pretty devastating. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how to tell people where the line is on this or that thing, but you, you need to 
make sure that there is a moral order to what you're saying, that it's a good moral order, one that reflects the way God made the world, and that there's a real joke and not just an attitude of flippancy, like everything's stupid, or this whole category of things are stupid. There's a big difference between Homer Simpson is funny because he's a bad dad, and Homer Simpson is funny because he's a dad and all dads are like Homer Simpson. Yeah. Are you laughing at Homer or are you laughing at fatherhood? Right. I don't have a problem with laughing at Homer. I mean, we could talk about The Simpsons some other time, but Homer as a type, you know, laughing at a bad father. Although, you know, you look at our culture, you look at how much we're asked to laugh at fathers, how little respect anyone has for fathers. And then it makes you think, maybe I don't even want to read or watch the thing that does it well and has a point because it's feeding something that's being it's part. It's part of the machine. It's part Mm -hmm. of the machine. I was like, you know what, Matt Groening, to use the Simpsons example, he had a pretty good angle on what made a bad dad, but the entire culture has adopted that angle and made it what we think every dad is. So maybe, maybe you can't go back to the Simpsons now. I'm, I'm willing to, I'm not going to make that determination here on the podcast, but I think those are the kinds of determinations we can make. I mean, maybe there, there are people that definitely, I, I, could, I could think of them, you know, I know them. There, there are young ladies that are young men that shouldn't read Jane Austen. Because they they do just think everybody's stupid. And Jane Austen, for all her wonderful satire... She can play right into that. She can play right into that. And there are definitely people who need to be told to sober up and not be so flippant about life and not just watch YouTube videos about funny things. This is moving away from answering Ben's question, but I think it's just another point that needs to be made. I think what those people need to understand is that the pursuit of humor as an end in and of itself is ultimately nihilistic like if that's the only thing you care about eventually you're not going to have anything to push against you're not if if all you care about is finding the incongruities eventually you're going to run out of congruities and then you're just going to be a nihilist and you're going to be a very sad depraved person humor exists as a delightful uh what do you want to say is something that incidentally occurs in the process of day-to-day life when it becomes an end in and of itself just like sex just like all kinds of things when it becomes our God, it's a destructive God and a bad one and an idol. So you can't live for humor. You live for God and you'll laugh at more stuff. If you like humor, then live for God and more things will be more funny in a more wholesome and ultimately joyful way. And I say this, of course, out of personal experience. I did live for humor at a certain point because it was the only social currency that I felt like I had coming out of high school in my early years. And I had to give it up completely and just say, God, I don't want to make this idol. I don't care if anybody ever laughs at anything I say again. And then, surprise, surprise, God's really merciful and generous, and now I do funny podcasts and stuff, and it's really great. But you can't make that stuff an idol, and you can't make it your only social identity. 